So before I give the talk, I'm just curious, when you hear the word faith, and uh, we'll do a little uh, hand count, um, how, how many people have a positive uh, relationship to that word, positive response when you hear that word? Some people are like, yeah, hallelujah. <laughs> <laughs> and how many people, is it a negative or mm, you know, some conditioning or... Okay, so some, and how many people is neutral? Okay, so a mix, mixed bag, yeah. Okay, are we, are we on? Yeah. So I want to speak about faith from a Buddhist perspective. As opposed, from, as opposed to a theistic perspective, which many or most of us are more familiar with, faith in a faith-based religion. I don't regard Buddhism as a faith-based religion. It's a, a tradition that's based on reliance on finding out the truth for ourselves and listening to the teachings, studying the teachings, putting into practice the teachings and seeing if what is taught and offered is true in our own experience. So it's a very different kind of faith than, say, faith in a creator being. The Buddha said the faith is the beginning of all good things. Faith is the beginning of all good things. And I'm talking about it tonight in the context of the teaching on the five spiritual faculties, which are five qualities that are really essential on the path. The Buddha talked about many different qualities in many different lists and forms. Um, So um, the five spiritual faculties are one of those uh, really useful lists to look at how well-rounded and balanced we are in our spiritual life. And faith is the beginning of those qualities. Faith in ourselves, faith in practice, faith... It's what got you here tonight. If you didn't have any faith that this stuff was any good, you wouldn't be here. So there's some, whether you know it or not, there's some inkling or trust or... Whether you trust in something you've heard about Spirit Rock or or because your friends go or because you've read something... So there's something that pulls us here. You know, on a cold, rainy night, something drags you out of your cozy house to come listen to a talk and and to meditate. Just as when we get up in the morning to sit, there's some faith at work that this practice makes a difference. This practice works. This practice has some value. So whether we think of ourselves as a faith, as a person with faith or not, we actually, faith is, is integral to everything that we do. We have faith that our cars are not going to break down as we as we drive here. We have faith in many many in the fact that the lights aren't going to go off or the the innumerable things we we don't even think about the things we take faith in until they start going wrong, and then and then we realize we had so much reliance. So in terms of the spiritual faculties, faith gives rise to the impetus or the energy to look at ourselves, to do our meditation practice, to, uh, to face the difficult things in ourselves. 
And with that effort comes mindfulness, comes clarity, comes attention, which is really the central quality that we develop in this path. And out of mindfulness arises clarity and wisdom, the last of the faculties. So the, the literal word for, so the, the Pali word for faith is, is sadha or shraddha in Sanskrit, which means, literally means to place the heart upon, to place one's heart upon. So where do you play, what do you place your heart upon? I think it's a lovely poetic uh, understanding because we, you know, we really move with our heart, we think with our head, and we, but we really moved with our heart. So what is it that, that pulls at our heart? That where we, we, you know, when we place a heart upon something, it's really an act. It is an act of faith. It's an act of trust. It's not going to be hurt. It's not going to be abused. It's not going to be uh, led astray. So one of the the the, the meanings of this this teaching of faith is to trust in one's own experience. So Buddhism is really, a, in a way, a self-reliant practice. The Buddha said, be a lamp unto yourselves, know thyself. Be a lamp unto yourself. He said, don't believe something just because I said it, just because you heard it written in the text, or you heard about it from some bigwig teacher, don't believe in it because it's practiced for many years. Look to the truth of your own experience. Does this, does this teaching and this practice, whatever it is that you do, does it lead to happier states of mind? If it is, then it's in accordance with the Dharma, with, with the truth. If it leads to unhappiness or suffering or distress or anxiety or fear, it's not what he would call the Dharma, the truth. So it's trusting in ourselves, but it's really trusting in something very specific, which is trusting in our capacity to awaken. Trusting in that we have the capacity to grow, to change, to let go of that which is painful and harmful and difficult. To cultivate the qualities that bring happiness and liberation and peace. It's also trusting that we can understand what we need to know, understanding what truths we need to know in this life, in this journey, and that we can grow into understanding and alignment with those truths. So one of the key teachings of Buddhism is the teachings of change, of transience, of living our lives with the reality, understanding that things are insubstantial, they're unreliable, that nothing is... Uh, permanent, nothing is uh, guaranteed in this life. And when we, when we live in accordance with those, with those laws of the universe, the laws of this world, we experience more harmony, more peace, more happiness. It's very simple. The kind of faith that the Buddha is pointing to is not a blind faith. So often association with faith is it's blind. There's a, there's a sense that, well, Faith can seem sometimes a little naive, or people who have a lot of faith perhaps can be easily hoodwinked. Uh, 
taking too much Kool-Aid. The latest Kool-Aid is that the uh, Day of Judgment is coming on May 21st, which you may have heard. How many people have heard about the Day of Judgment on May 21st? Happens to be my birthday, so that makes me... (laughs) So that makes me the Antichrist, I think. What can I say? So there's a lot of interesting things people take faith in. Who knows? We'll find out on May 22nd whether they're right. (laughs) I think I'm teaching on the 22nd. (laughs) So some people have given up their jobs and given all their money away or spent it. What would you do if you had a week left? So there's a story from the suttas of a monk called Vakula. I think that's how you pronounce his name, Vakala, who was infatuated with the presence of the Buddha. And um, all he wanted to do was look at the Buddha. He just, he just had so much hmm, faith or inspiration from, from looking at him. So he, he ordained, and he would just follow the Buddha around and sit in the front row and go... <laughs> and the Buddha, of course, wasn't having any of that. It's like, you know, you think this is... Can I get you enlightened looking at this body? Like, forget it. <laughs> and um, uh, the Buddha said, if he didn't practice, if he didn't actually meditate and do the work that you have to do, he's going to kick him out of the, of the order. So the monk got really depressed and uh, became suicidal because he wasn't allowed to look at the Buddha. The Buddha said, you can look at this form, this body for a hundred years and still not see the Buddha. One who sees the Dharma... One who sees the truth sees the Buddha. It's a beautiful statement. One who sees the Dharma sees the Buddha. The Buddha is not in the form of the Buddha. It's not in these statues, beautiful as they are. It's in the capacity to awaken, to know the truth, to live with the truth. So when we live in alignment with the truth, when we see the truth clearly, we're seeing the Buddha. They're not different. So then the Buddha told him there's, there's so much more and then this, this, this monk, Vakula, got a lot of bliss and happiness from looking at the Buddha. And the, monk, and the Buddha said, there's so much more to be had. You have, you have no idea of the joy and, the, and, the, and the, the ecstasy that's available if you really put these teachings into practice. And upon hearing that, um, the, the monk apparently attained awakening, as as often happens. It worked. it worked. But it worked because he was given a teaching. He, so, so what you know? The, what the Buddha was very good at doing was using, in this case, using the the faith of this monk to he was so he would make that you know faith makes makes in some ways creates a lot of openness, and so he could see that this this monk was very was very receptive, and it didn't take a lot for the teaching to enter because there's so much openness. That's why there's why devotional practices in in all the traditions. Um, uh, designed to open the heart, to open the receptivity. You know, when we come in with a closed mind and a resistant mind, then there's not so much, the, the, the teachings don't land so easily, they don't take root. So faith is also distinct from hope. Sometimes those two words get conflated. There's a, um, a saying from a Roman philosopher called Seneca. He said, you cease to be afraid when you cease to hope, because hope is always accompanied by fear. 
So in Buddhism, there's this distinction made between hope and fear. Hope always has the flip side of fear alongside it. Whereas faith is some, is, is, gives us a deeper... Um, it's not based on, on an expectation of something in the future, which often so underpins hope. And faith is an antidote of um, one of the primary meditation hindrances of doubt. Anybody have doubt here? Self-doubt? <laughs> doubt in life, doubt in yourself, doubt in the practice, doubt in your ability to follow two breaths, doubt in your ability to wake up. You know? So with faith, when we develop faith in our, our confidence, another translation of faith, confidence in our ability, confidence in our capacity, confidence in this path. You know, the Buddha said, um, if I didn't think it was possible for you to uh, be free of greed and hatred and delusion and the suffering of all that that comes with, I wouldn't ask you to do this practice. But because I know that each person has the potential to free themselves from the forces of attachment and hatred and delusion, that he said, yeah, do this practice, this practice works. But of course it requires practice. That's why it's called practice. (laughs) So, and we need, um, sometimes we need faith because, you know, the journey, life's journey, the spiritual journey is not easy. I, um, someone was telling me about some research, I forget what the context was the other day, where um, when you, you know, when you study single-celled organisms, you know, through the microscope, like you might have done in school, biology, um, amoeba cells and whatnot, um, when they're placed on a little, some kind of, whatever those plates are called, petri dish, something, the, 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 the single-cell organisms will always move to the edge. They're always tracked moving to the edge of that sphere. I don't know if that's totally true, but that's what, I was, that's what this research came up with. And um, so I, but I like that metaphor of, of, the, of the tendency of, the, of, of, of life to move to the edge, to move to the edge. So in, in practice in life, we're always being pushed in a way. We're, our edges are always being challenged. And so often we need a lot of faith to hang out on the edge, whatever our edge is, the edge of our capacity, the edge of our knowledge, the edge of our ability to endure pain, fear or sadness or whatever it is. So traditionally in Buddhist practice, the, there's a taking of the refuge, as many of you know, in the three jewels. The three jewels of Buddhism are the, the, uh, the three pillars of Buddhism. The, you take refuge. Again, refuge is also to, t- to place the heart upon uh, the Buddha, the Dharma, the, and the Sangha. The Buddha being this uh, capacity to awaken. That the Buddha showed that was an, who was an ordinary human being who was able to, through his own efforts, understand the truth and, and attain freedom from suffering. Refuge in the Dharma, in, in, in these teachings, these practices, 
and in the Sangha, the spiritual community. We take refuge as another form of having faith in like-minded people who are here, who may be helping us along the way. So much harder to do this on our own. So, so I want to say, uh, I want to talk about faith in the context of my own uh, journey um, and, to, and to talk about the different levels of faith and how I've experienced them in different things that I've encountered and, and it will maybe perhaps um, relate or respond or ignite some reflections in your own journey. So the, the path, any path, uh, usually begins with what's called initial faith, where we have, um, has, there has to be some modicum of openness to even step foot inside Spirit Rock or to buy a book on meditation or to go listen to a lecture on, by some teacher. There has to be some inkling that this is going to be useful or valuable or have merit in some way. And so each of you in your own way have, have at some point had that initial faith. We're like, oh, I wonder what that spirit rock place is like. I wonder what this Buddhist teaching is about. I wonder what meditation, you know, you read all this research of him with the positive effects of it. I wonder if that's really true. I wonder, I'll try that for myself. So I remember when I started, um, I'd met some uh, Buddhist in London. I was in the, living in the East End of London. And I was, uh, I was a young... Um, bull-headed punk rocker, anarchist. I was angry, I was confused, I was looking for something I didn't even know I was looking for, but I was looking for something to take me out of uh, a lot of pain that I was in. And um, I I was squatting this house uh, that was owned by a Buddhist housing co-op who were not very happy that I was squatting it. (laughs) Squatting it is when you basically occupy it without having tenancy and live there as long as you can without rent. And... um, so I met these very um, nice Buddhists who were trying to befriend us and uh, heard about this, and they, they seemed very pleasant. And, uh, and I, so I decided to check out this Buddhist center, which was about five minutes around the corner from where I was living, which is a very odd place for a Buddhist center to be in London, which is the early 80s, and Buddhism was very unknown at that time. And... Um, and I walked into the center. It was a very beautiful center, big golden Buddhas and beautiful murals uh, on the walls and, um, and a few people walking around doing chores and cleaning the, the temple and but moving in a way that was very serene. They were very present and very kind and gracious. And my faith was immediately aroused because there was something in the, in the presence of those people that seemed a little different. And I couldn't say what it was. I couldn't, I couldn't name what it was that I was looking for, but I could see in their still, calm presence there was something that spoke to something that, that seemed to hold a key to, um, to finding a way to live in this life with some coolness or with some balance or some ease instead of the fires that I was feeling. So I went to a class... Um, on the Four Noble Truths, uh, sort of introductory meditation class and a teaching on the Four Noble Truths, which is the foundational teaching of the Buddha. And um, I didn't really understand most of what they were saying. They had these big whiteboards and they're explaining things about meditation and 
the way out of suffering, and and um, I have to say most of the words didn't really go in. You know, it's, it's a lot when you start hearing these you know, pretty big concepts. But I it, it I, I I consider myself a um, uh, you know what's called a bhakti or devotional type, and so I respond more through my heart and my faith and through my 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 intellect. And there was something again that I felt like. There was something registered. Oh, here's something. Here's a teaching. Here's a practice that seems to offer a step-by-step way to free oneself from suffering. And there's something in my heart that responded, like, oh, maybe there is a way. You know, this has been seemingly tried and tested for thousands of years. It's been around in many different cultures all over the world. So it piqued my interest, and. Um, but faith in the beginning is wobbly, as you may know, as maybe you're already in this place or you go back and forth with it. So I signed up for this meditation retreat over Christmas or New Year or something. I was over New Year. And um, so I got on the train down to Brighton and then uh, the, 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 the retreat center was close to there in the south of England. And um, I was a little trepidatious because, you know, I, I didn't know anything about Buddhism. I didn't really know any Buddhist or anybody who even had remote interest in it. And um, so I got to the train station and there was some really weird looking characters hanging out at the train station, which is not necessarily abnormal for, abnormal for England, but anyhow. Um, I thought, and I had this thought, hmm, I bet they're going to the retreat. <laughs> I bet it's full of weirdos. <laughs> so I got the next train back home. <laughs> so that was the grand start to my uh, meditation journey. So sometimes your faith gets, you know, gets a little challenged and a little wobbly, especially when it's not that strong. So, um, but anyhow, over time I started going to the center and meditating more, and I and I started to become a little more my own. And um, so much so that I did eventually get to a weekend retreat up in, the, in the Norfolk, up in, the, up in Anglia, East Anglia, and, um, and had a really, it was a very powerful time to, to, to be with. It was, about, it was like 80, 100 people on the retreat. And uh, to be chanting and meditating and studying and to be with around people who seemed like they had sort of figured something out that I hadn't figured out about life and you know, I was 19, so I hadn't figured out pretty much anything. <laughs> so, um, so much so, I got so inspired that I, decided I dropped out of college and uh, moved into this uh, retreat center um, in the summer. And um, in a way, this was uh, uh, what I call my big moment of faith where you just, it's like you take a leap of faith. I didn't really know what I was getting into, but I had some inkling that this was um, taking me on, on the right path, whatever that was to be. So this is initial faith, where we have some encounter, some contact with teachings or teachers or people who are involved in some practice that we, we respond to. And then that initial faith be, becomes what was called a bright faith, where it becomes a little more firmly established, where, but it's a, it's a faith that's still a little more dependent on the external. So it's a bright faith that respond, like, like the monk Vakula had in response to the Buddha. We may have it in response to a teacher or to a place 
or to a body of teaching. So there's a lovely story of um, in the tradition of uh, one of the most amazing practitioners in this lineage um, called Deepama, who is a um, uh, a woman who'd um, um, Indian woman who had um, had a family, was married, and uh, had lost one child, and then uh, not long after lost her second child, and was distraught, and she also lost her husband, um, and um, was living in Burma at the time, and uh, was very depressed and couldn't really function, and I'm sure many of you heard the story from Jack, uh, managed to crawl her way to a retreat center, to a monastery, and literally crawled up the steps to the meditation hall, um, moved by some 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 juice of faith that somehow there would be some refuge in the teaching, and so she started practicing. And uh, it turned out she had incredible aptitude for meditation. Became one of the most uh, profound meditators uh, of this tradition. Uh, and deep accomplishments, deep level of awakening. Um, all from that initial movement of faith that became bright faith because she had such faith and confidence in her teachers. And she way surpassed her teachers in terms of her understanding and meditation accomplishment, but because she had such faith in them, they were still able to guide her. So I moved into this retreat center in England, and I was connected to an organization called the Friends of the Western Buddhist Order, that a Buddhist movement mostly in... um, uh, England and, and Germany and uh, uh, New Zealand, the Commonwealth, uh, Australia, other, other countries where the Queen apparently has some sway. Anyhow, um, <laughs> won't go down that road of the royal family. That's not where I place my heart upon. So anyhow, I um, so I moved into the centre and. and uh, where the, where the founding teacher lived, he was a monk. He was a monk in the one of the first um, Western monks. He he ordained. He was in the military service in the Second World War, and ordained um, pretty soon after that. Um, and basically, t- self-taught. Since there were very few Buddhist teachers around in India at the time, he basically taught himself, and studied and practiced, and uh, again also attained a uh, deep level of accomplishment and founded an organization that spread uh, globally, um, was a very inspiring person to be around. And he was a monk for 40 years or something and wrote amazing texts when he was like 28, 29 years old. And um, so my faith really deepened, having contact with him, seeing him. And um, uh, I used to love watching him move because he moved like a snail. And his, he, he, his, you know, he's, according to what he would say about his practice, that he he would barely have a moment without mindfulness. And you could just see as he walked around the grounds, he walked up the stairs, got into the car, talked, everything was incredibly present, incredibly full in a certain way. And... Um, uh, so maybe you may, I'm, I'm, I'm partly giving this story because I'm hoping it stirs your own journey and your own what, what things have touched you 
may have been teachings, it may have been teachers, maybe it's the Dalai Lama or Thich Nhat Hanh or uh, people who have done so much practice that they really embody the spirit and the essence of liberation, of freedom, of, of kindness, of compassion. I also remember being really inspired by spiritual friends. So, as I mentioned, the, the, the three refuges, the, the third refuge being the refuge of Sangha, of spiritual community. It's really hard to do this practice alone. It's really hard to do this practice without friendship, without guidance, without mentors, without support. I know I wouldn't, I would have, you know, I would have left years ago had I not had spiritual friends who supported me on the journey. It's why we come together like this. And there's something very fruitful and useful and valuable to sit together. Yeah? It's not easy to, to wake up. It's not easy to be conscious. It's not easy to practice forgiveness and kindness in a culture that doesn't really value that so much. So we come together for the support. So my first, my primary friend in that tradition was this chap who was... Um, ordain and his name was Sangapala, which means uh, protector of the Sangha. And he basically took me on. I was this, as I said, this young, confused punk and didn't know much about anything <laughs> except I was really angry about a lot of things. And um, I just remember his steady presence and support and encouragement and uh, over the years really allowed me to stay uh, connected to the practice when it got difficult. And then over time, as we grow and we develop and mature, and uh, you know, through the lifespan of our practice, different teachers and different teachings and different traditions will speak to us at, at times more than others. And sometimes we grow out of a practice or, or, or a teacher or a teaching and we move on and we find different teachers. And so that happened for me after some years with this group. Um, uh, I started to feel disenchanted for various reasons. Um, and again, it was a test of faith because I, I, I began to lose confidence in some of the teachers. Um, again, without going into a long story about why that was, I began to have a lot more doubt come up and I had to rely on my own practice and my own intuitive uh, uh, understanding about what was true for me or what was useful for me. And I decided to leave that group and uh, go to India to see if I could find sort of the original uh, sources of Buddhist practice, that that particular tradition was more uh, Western in its, in its form. So I went to India and I went to Nepal and looked around and uh, eventually came across a teacher called um, Christopher Titmus. Um, and various other teachers, and I started Vipassana practice in the early 90s. And again, it was like a reawakening of faith, and so I think in this journey we have several evolutions or awakening or deepening of our faith, whether it's because we get challenged and we have to really put our practice to work, or because we just meet, we happen to have the good fortune of meeting inspiring teachers. So, and I like to think of this as like a bright inner faith, where we, we, there's, there's faith in the external teachers, but also faith in we begin to trust what we know what's useful for us. 
So, um, and I remember that day that I, that I got the bus into Bodh Gaya, which is the birthplace where the origin of where the Buddha attained awakening and has become a, a mecca for Buddhist pilgrimages. And um, uh, there's a beautiful temple grounds and a beautiful stupa that's a couple hundred feet high. And you get, I was on the bus, they come from Gaia, and it was, you know, a typical Indian village. It was noisy and bustly, and there was a marketplace, and there was teeming people, and noise, and pollution. And then through the trees, I just got a glimpse of this stupa, this really this several hundred feet high stupa, uh, which is a, you know, as, as a reminder of the Buddha. And I, I can just still remember the very day that the sense of my heart gladdening of just of just the possibility here I am back in the in the place where all this all this practice started from all this teaching started from the the descendant of the tree that the Buddha was sitting under uh, in this very place um, and there's just something about being touched like that and that sense of oh this this isn't just a, a nice story that I read in a book that actually happened. That this is real. This took place. This was a man living in northern India, was wandering around uh, in robes as an ascetic, and sat down under the tree and said, I'm not going to get up until I've attained awakening. Incredibly inspiring. And there's something still alive in that place, which is why it's such a sacred pilgrim site for Buddhists from all over the world. And I remember being around uh, Christopher Titmus and his teaching. And anybody familiar with Christopher's teaching here? One or two? Yeah. So it um, doesn't come to the States anymore, but a wonderful teacher and very passionate, inspired, and was a monk for many years in Thailand. And again, when I, I remember listening to his teaching, I did a 20 day retreat with him in Bodh Gaya and um, began to get a sense of uh, the possibility of awakening in this lifetime that uh, I had this idea from and this, this is an idea that's, that you may come across in, in different Buddhist teachings and texts that sometimes uh, the, the, the ideal of awakening enlightenment is, is considered and is talked about so lofty and idealized that it seems like it's a million, million miles away from where we are and when I was listening to Christopher he was saying awakening is possible here and now in this moment, in this mind, in this body, in this, in this consciousness. And it was something that was very radical. It kind of shook up my whole being. What do you mean awakening is possible now? I have to do lifetimes and lifetimes of practices and this and that. And he's saying, no, it's possible right here. Where else is it going to happen? You know? Who else is it going to happen to? So it stirred up some very deep level of faith and also passion. And, you know, again, going back to the spiritual faculties, faith arouses energy. It's like, oh, yeah, I want to practice. I want to deepen. I want to know. I want to taste this fruit. I don't want to just read about it in books and hear about all these people, these saints and sages who've attained it in the past. I want to actually know this for myself. Otherwise, what's the point? It's just a nice story. So, and then I studied um, with a teacher called Punjaji who was... um, uh, teacher in the Advaita Vedanta tradition, which is a, a tradition that's most close in some ways to Buddhist teaching. And um, again, somebody who uh, I felt uh, was very realized 
and incredibly joyful, incredibly happy, and incredibly effusive and radiant in his being. And um, and, it, and again, it, it, it stirred up another sense of faith, which was what what a, what realization looks like in this form. What it, what it can look like, you know, it doesn't just look like stone, <laughs> metal, or wooden. Buddha sitting very quiet. No, it can be also very dynamic and joyful and playful and uh, challenging and alive and spontaneous. And so, again, there's, there's, a, there's a still in the realm of bright faith where we see, where we're still looking externally, but it can stir something very deep within us. And eventually, this, this, the, the initial faith and the bright faith has to become verified. We have to know this for ourselves. We have to look from our own experience to see how this is true, how this can be true in, our, in ourselves. We have to develop our own confidence, our own ability in awareness, in practice. Confidence in our capacity to change our habits and tendencies of mind. Tendencies that that may may or do lead to suffering. How many people have confidence that they can transform their negative habits of mind? How many people? Ha- how many people have faith in your own practice that you can transform? Good. I'm glad to see so many hands. So after traveling India, I did some many many years of, um, of more intensive retreat practice. And here and in Tibetan Meditation Society and Barry and in England and Asia and um, and there's something about doing more intensive practice uh, that is a wonderful tool or vehicle for, for for really looking and working with these deep habits of mind. You know these these tendencies that occlude us, you know, the desires and the attachments and the fears and the judgments and the comparing and the conceit and the, they don't just go overnight, you know, it takes deep years of work of understanding, of feeling, of seeing, of being with, compassion. So I remember being on on long retreats and I had to work with a lot of physical pain as a lot of people do when they do retreats or in life. And um, there being many times where I, the feeling came, I can't do this. I can't sit with this pain. I can't deal with this chronic pain wherever I was having at the time, which was in many different places. Uh, once it was in my sit bones, which is really a drag when you're doing a sitting meditation retreat. And all you're doing is sitting. <laughs> or you do walking too. But um, it was excruciating to sit. And, you know, but with the mindfulness practice, there was a sense of learning how to find that place of ease, of equanimity, of non-reactivity, of kindness, of gentleness, of acceptance, and learning to work with very difficult states. There were physical states, learning to work with the emotional upheavals, the losses, the pains, the grievances, the sadnesses. So I learned to trust in the power of metta, to have faith in the, in the practice of metta. Very powerful practice. I started doing that practice in 1984 and um, uh, very simple practice, saying phrases, loving kindness to ourselves and to others. Um, but it wasn't until I started doing longer retreats that I really felt how the, 
the practice of metta, it's almost like it, it scours the heart, scours the, the tendencies of mind that are more hard, that are more aggressive, that are more exclusive and fearful and distrusting. Or doing the, the practice of concentration. And the Buddha taught the various practice, concentration practices, talked about absorptions and jhanas and these very beautiful, exalted, expansive, blissful states of consciousness. And they're all possible. They're all realizable if we practice. You know, and again, retreat practice is a wonderful vehicle for those to flower. And then there are times when our faith is challenged, when our faith is ruptured, when our faith is really rocked by something that's happening in us, something happening uh, with a teacher we're studying with or what we hear about, some teacher that's fallen from grace or, um, or we just come across something in our lives where the practice doesn't seem to uh, give us refuge where we're really pushed up against ourselves to dig deeper in a way. So we all have those times, whether it's in our practice, whether it's in our lives or our relationships or with our health. So I had you know, various kinds of those. One of those was I was on a long retreat, as I may have mentioned here at some point and had to work through a lot of early trauma and deep pain, and it was so painful I, I couldn't practice for a while. I couldn't do the formal sitting practice, couldn't do the walking practice. I was on a long retreat, couldn't go into the meditation hall, and had to really learn how to hold myself with a lot of kindness, with a lot of patience, a lot of forgiveness, a lot of acceptance. And it really challenged my faith, because I, I, I lost... Um, I seemed to lose contact with the ability to do the meditation practices that I was familiar with. And so it really got me to question what I know, what I can rely on for support. But, you know, as these difficult journeys do, they teach us a lot of things, and ultimately they usually strengthen and deepen our faith. And one of the things that deepened was my faith in the, in the psyche's capacity to heal. Our psyches and our bodies have this innate movement towards healing, towards integration, towards union. And we'll, the psyche has this wisdom that way by, bypasses the wisdom of the, the thinking mind that will often create the circumstances in which healing can happen. Sometimes that happens through repetition of certain things that we do. Anybody repeat certain things because we're not learning the lessons that we need to learn? Yeah, that's the psyche's way of getting us to look at these things that we need to understand, need to have compassion for, need to liberate in a certain way. And I also saw the, the body's innate wisdom to heal trauma. The body, like the psyche, has this capacity to self-heal, given the right conditions. So in terms of a long-term view, what I see, and I've been practicing now for some years, 25 years or more. And just to see the ups and downs of the path. There are times when faith is bright and we're, we're inspired and we're feeling revved up to practice, to study, to meditate, to do service. And there are times when it feels really 
barren and dry, and we don't know what we're doing, where we're going, why we're doing it. And that's the times where usually we take refuge in friends, spiritual friends and teachers, or something that allows us to, to navigate those difficulties. So I've talked very specifically about faith in that, that arises out of our practice, but of course faith is much bigger than that. We have faith in many, many things, in the earth, in love, in human nature, in goodness, in kindness, in grace, in mystery, in innumerable things. So I wanted to close with this uh, letter that um, some of you may read it went round the internet. Um, I like to read these things when, so this is a, a letter from Sendai, from just post-tsunami in Japan. And sometimes it's very easy, especially when we watch the news, listen to the news, read the papers, to lose a, lit, a little or a lot of faith in human nature, human goodness, because so much of the, the media is focused towards human uh, delusion, ignorance, hatred, greed, violence. And so, you know, people being nice to each other and kind to each other doesn't really make good news. So, um, here's a news, here's a little bit of faith in human nature from a letter from Sendai. Things here, this is written a couple days after the tsunami. Things here in Sendai have been rather surreal, but I am blessed to have wonderful friends who are helping. Since my shack is even more worthy of that name, I'm now staying at a friend's home. We share supplies like water and food and a kerosene heater. We sleep lined up in one room, eat by candlelight, share stories. It is warm and friendly. During the day, we help each other clean up the mess in our homes. People sit in their cars looking at the news on their screens or line up to get drinking water. If someone has water running in their home, they put out a sign so people can come to fill up their jugs and buckets. It's utterly amazing that where I am, there's been no looting, pushing in lines. People leave their front door open now as it's safer when an earthquake strikes. People keep saying, oh, this is how it used to be in the old days when everyone helped one another. And the Japanese people themselves are so wonderful. I came back to my shack to check on it each day, and I find food and water left in my entranceway. I have no idea from whom, but it is there. Old men in green hats go from door to door checking to see if everyone's okay. People talk to complete strangers asking if they need help. I see no signs of fear. Resignation, yes, but fear or panic, no. Last night, my friend's husband came in from the country bringing food and water, blessed again. And somehow, as I experience the events happening now in Japan, I can feel my heart opening very wide. My brother asked me if I felt so small because of all that is happening. I don't. Rather, I feel as part of something happening that's much larger than myself. Somehow at this time I realized from direct experience that there is indeed an enormous evolutionary step that's occurring all over the world. And somehow as I experience the events happening now in Japan, I can feel my heart opening wide. My brother asked me if I felt so small because of all that's happening. I don't. Rather I feel as part of something happening that's much larger than myself. So I'm curious, um, 
Anybody like to share any comments or observations or questions they have about your own experience of faith, your own journey, or anything that's come up for you? Um, I didn't speak to so much about the the difficulties we may have or the challenges we have with faith. Um, yeah. At the beginning, you mentioned how was here at Spirit Rock and how the land was here. And it occurred to me that one of the things that I love most about Spirit Rock, the thing that I put my heart on, are all the other people here. The people here, our fellow wayfinders, you know. That was that was an important concept for me. That that's where my faith is. Mm-hmm. Good. Yeah. Yeah, so I think it's true for many of us we put our faith in community, friendship, spiritual friendship. Yeah. Um, I notice that when I have faith um, that things are going to work out or faith that there's a feeling like there's a grace in my life, that everything everything just seems to flow. And I'm in the right place at the right time and I meet the right person and everything continues from there. And But then I notice that when I don't have faith that sometimes like I could want it so much and yet and be like, I know that if I was feeling attached to a certain grace or if I had faith that things would um, flow in the right way. But it's like trying to make that happen is actually kind of counter to Mm -hmm. actually letting it happen. Mm -hmm. And I wanted to just say one other comment that one time I was talking to a friend of mine and we were camping and it was very cold and rainy like this and um, she was really sad because she couldn't find a job. And I said, you know, you just have to have faith in fate. And at that point, a little cat just started crying outside my tent. And I opened the tent door, and she was starving and cold and wet and came right inside my sleeping bag. And I named her Fate, and she lives with me. So. Uh-huh. Cute. <laughs> and she's awesome. Did your friend get a job? It's okay. We don't need My friend did get a job. Yeah, eventually. Yeah. Just go. Just, hmm? Turn the mic. It's not, it's not working, so just... just it's you, not, you, you, you've it's got a loud voice. Uh, only working when you really put it close like this. Uh, I'm always kind of hesitant to speak up and kind of risk bringing down the entire uh, space. Because um, uh, when you mention faith and, and hope, I mean, those concepts are completely out my window. Um, when you ask, you know, who who associates faith with something negative, I I couldn't raise my hand high enough. Uh, three years ago, uh, our beloved seventeen-year-old daughter and only child jumped off the Golden Gate Bridge and was washed away. And so, um, I don't have I don't have faith in anything. Um, I don't have any hope in anything. Uh, you just sort of exist. Uh, it's not really living anymore. Um, so what, bring, what brings you here? It's a, very, it's a good question. And uh, what brings me here is that it kind of helps quiet my mind for a little bit. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I suppose... Uh, I suppose that that is a 
testament of faith, I suppose. Because mm -hmm. otherwise, three years ago, I never would have bet any amount of money I'd be here today. Mm -hmm. Just didn't want to live. Yeah. So, I don't know. It's uh, kind of like my therapist says. It's kind of like me looking for a little shoot of, mm -hmm. of life poking out from the soil, that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. So, I don't know whether that makes any sense at all because there's yeah. no question there really. But that's what I had to say. Yeah. Well, thank you for sharing. I'm sorry to hear about your loss. I'm the one who brought you here, by the way. <laughs> because I've done um, yoga before, and, you know, it just really helped me center over the years. I've done it for about 20 years on and off, and I've been trying to tell him about all this stuff, and it just sounds like a bunch of gobbly, gobbledygook, and he's finally decided to try and come out find out for himself. This is your first time here? No. No, you come here. You come no, bunch. Trying to be regulars. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You know, and it reminds me of a story I read about, you know, when you get lava flow over a piece of land, you know, and it wipes it out and becomes completely desolate for years or decades or centuries, and at some point a shoot of green life appears somehow, mysteriously, miraculously, and life starts to take root. And it sounds like there is some movement of faith in you. Otherwise, you wouldn't be here. You'd be at home and doing something else. So, um, and, you know, just as I was talking about, you know, we all go, th you know, there's, you know, this, you're going through a particularly extreme one, but where we have, you know, intense ruptures of faith, and it can take years or decades to to rekindle that. So I'm glad you're here. Yeah. Anybody else? Last comment? Yeah. I found faith to be in my own heart. Sometimes I feel like um, when I've had loss, there's this, there's this human heart of mine that squeezes and breaks and cries and holds on to things. But there's this sort of divine heart that I can reach into that seems to go beyond all that. And that's faith. It's like I just trust that completely. Mm -hmm. And um, it's right there inside us. Yeah, beautiful. Yes, yeah, so it's something that we touch in wherever we find it, in silence, in nature, in ourselves. You know, with this, I think the thing, one of the things that we take most refuge in is faith in something bigger than ourselves. You know, we're all trapped to varying degrees in the bounds of identity, ego, fixation, selfing, and we also can also taste some intimation of something bigger, vaster, more free, more potential, more liberating than that, which is why we come to somewhere like this, because we all, you know, we, we touch into it in meditation at times, in nature at times, in stillness. Yeah, there's something, we have some inkling of something, some greater possibility. So that's ultimately what we take refuge in. 
that, that, that possibility. And as we, as our, as our understanding deepens, that becomes more. We grow into that. We know that more truly. We, we reside in that heart of knowing, as you point to. So thank you for your for listening and um, your attention. And um, may your faith grow in whatever it needs to grow in. So I have a couple of announcements of things coming up here at Spirit Rock. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.